This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. One example that uh, minimalist hyper-skeptical scholars would give, they would say you don't have the, the two names of God, El and Yahweh, together anywhere. They're hundreds of years apart. Well, guess what we have in this curse tablet, Elisa? We have the name of El and then the covenant name of God, Yahweh, multiple times in the same curse tablet from the late Bronze Age era, and it is so exciting. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. What do explorers, spies, espionage, MI6, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the forerunner to the CIA, battles, attacks, in some cases, death, bribery, thievery, defamation, lawsuits, identity theft. What do all of these things have in common? Biblical archaeology. We're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about a recent find that made headlines because of the implications it has for what we know about uh, the Old Testament, what we know about other things. Very fascinating. So of all the religious beliefs in the world, and we're talking about past beliefs, present beliefs, uh, none have been more thoroughly based in history uh, than Judaism and Christianity. So it's a huge advantage that Christianity has. If you look at the way that many other religious systems were formulated or how they came to be, you have a guy sitting under a tree or in a cave, and they get some kind of mystical revelation. They drum up some followers. There's some practical things you can do, the rituals and and all of these things. But it's not really based in history. In fact, as we're going to talk about, many other belief systems actually avoid interacting and engaging with history and archaeology. So these other religious systems can't build this critical bridges that Christianity can. So Gary Habermas, we've talked about him on the podcast before. He did his PhD at Michigan State University and studied the world religions, and he nearly became a Buddhist. And he said something the other day that was really fascinating. He stated that after studying all the world religions in comparison with Christianity, virtually no other religion has apologetics or apologists. And those that do don't 
don't have anything that would measure up to even just the 10 best evidences of Christianity. In fact, it could be argued that every religious system before or since Judaism and Christianity has actually avoided significant interaction with history. So instead, it's just asked its followers to believe on sheer faith or uh, by the claimed revelations of its founders. But today we have a special guest to help unpack some of this information. I want to ask you really quickly, if you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe and click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we've got some really great conversations coming up for you. But without any further ado, I want to introduce you to Jeremiah Johnston, who is a New Testament scholar. He's also the founder of the Christian Thinkers Society and was announced just recently to be the new associate pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church. And there he's going to also serve in a dual role as the Dean of Spiritual Development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. Jeremiah, welcome to the show. So glad to finally have you on. Elisa, I'm a huge fan of your ministry and how the Lord is using you. And as I travel and minister across the country, your name keeps popping up. And oh, so wow. I'm really excited for our discussion today. I'm so thankful for your stand for Christ. I'm delighted, if you don't mind me mentioning, that at Prestonwood Christian Academy, our annual Biblical Worldview Institute, you're going to be speaking. I don't want to yep. time date this too much, but in just a few months. And so, wow, uh, we're excited to be engaged in ministry with you. And I'm thrilled. That was an awesome intro, by the way. I'm <laughs> thrilled to be talking about the importance of history's closest cousin, biblical archaeology, and how that helps us think better about Christianity. Well, I, I got to tell you, part of my story is having you know, this faith crisis and then the rebuilding of my faith. One of the first, in fact, not one of, it was the first seminary class that I audited was biblical archaeology. And it was so wow. incredible to the faith building. It's, it was just so astonishing to me how when you look at all the finds that they continue to find, one of which we're going to talk about today, these finds continue to affirm things we've already believed and known about the Bible. And you can't really find anything that would disprove something. It, it just continues to, to shine light on what we've already known, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, I did my my doctoral terminal studies in the United Kingdom on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I mean, what we find out about the greatest event of our faith, the burial death, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when we look at Jewish burial traditions and archaeology around Jewish burial traditions and fun things to discuss like execution, it gives us so much more precision with our exegesis. But it as as the atheist archaeologist Jody, Jody Magnus says, everything we read in the Bible's juridical process, that is the whole trial, the conviction, the execution of Jesus, smacks of authenticity, and it's mm. consistent with what the material culture shows us of those that would be crucified in the land of Israel in non-war times. And so, again, that is such a great, great way for us to think more clearly about the gospel, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, because remember, Paul said, he uses that awesome Greek word, protois, we get the word prototype from it. He says, you know, Paul gives us something like 32,000 words in the Greek New Testament. He says, this is the most important thing, what I'm about to say, and he bases it in, he gives his, his kergama, this is the gospel I'm giving you. And by the way, it's all rooted in evidence, and if it didn't happen, we should be the most pitied. And mm. so, if the things that we say we believe, Elisa, are true, we should see fallout from the material culture all over the Mediterranean world. And guess what? There is fallout everywhere. 
That's awesome. So talk to us just briefly about what archaeology is, what it can do, what it can't do, maybe some misconceptions people might have going into this about what archaeology is and how that can serve what we know about the Bible. Yeah, the shorthand is, is you know, archaeology is about, all about digging the Bible. People love that. Um, <laughs> but I like to do a little bit more precision. Archaeology helps us read the Bible with first century eyes, Elisa. This is why it's so important for us as Christians. The Bible is relevant today to answer 21st century questions, but we have to read it with first century eyes, which means, and again, you model this so well for us with all of your guests. We have to be able to read the Bible and understand the original context with which these documents were written. And when we do that, when we open the Bible to a passage like Luke chapter 9, when Jesus tells the young disciple, who the would-be disciple, hey, let the dead bury their dead. You need to follow me now. If we don't understand Jewish burial traditions or archaeology, we find that passage in Luke 9.60 kind of troubling. Wait a minute, why won't Jesus allow this young man who might have just lost his dad to go mourn him. Why does Jesus demand immediate mm. fellowship? Well, if we understand oscillagium, second burial, that when, if you were part of a Jewish family, Elisa, you would, you would mourn your, your loved one's death for one year. At the one year anniversary of your loved one's death, you would go to the family tomb, you would collect the bones, you would place the bones in a family ossuary or bone box. The family that's buried together stays, stays together <laughs> in Jewish burial traditions. We have 150,000 of these on the Mount of Olives alone, by the way. And again, so that shows us this young man, he was, absolute, he was actually delaying his obedience to Jesus. He wanted to wait a year to follow Jesus. And again, Jesus is like, no, follow me now. Let the dead bury their dead. We have, do you see how much more precision we can bring to just understanding Jesus, understanding the Bible because of just a little snippet of archaeology? And so rather than kind of taking it from an academic lens, I do want to show people right now how they can open their Bible and say, oh, wow, uh, Luke 9, that makes a lot more sense to me now. And guess what? I need to follow Jesus with urgency as well. Love it. All right. So one more little clarifying question before we get into this new find, which, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, what is it we're going to be talking about today? This is what the Times of Israel, the headline was, Archaeologist Claims to Find the Oldest Hebrew text in Israel, including the name of God. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But Jeremiah, if you could tell us, you know, you're a New Testament scholar. This find has to do with the Old Testament. So what's your interest in it as a, as a New Testament scholar? Well, that's so important because, you know, unfortunately, academia, academia can be so siloed and isolated. And some might wonder, what business does a New Testament scholar have discussing Old Testament findings? Well, here's the deal. I couldn't understand Jesus if I didn't understand Hebrew Bible, Aramaic, and what became, what came to be known as what we now know as the Old Testament. In fact, I've given leadership as one of the editors to a TNT Clark series on scripture intertextuality in the Library of New Testament Studies published by Bloomsbury TNT Clark, uh, where I've published books like Searching the Scriptures. And it's all about how understanding the Old Testament, again, gives us more precision with our exegesis of the New Testament. I have a hermeneutical model that I teach that Scripture will always interpret Scripture. We go from what we know to what we don't know. And so, again, if I were to bifurcate uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, or uh, just completely ignore the Old Testament, by the way, like some modern skeptical scholars do, 
Mm. I'm not going to understand the Jesus of history. I'm not going to understand the material culture. I'm not going to understand uh, the Old Testament antecedents to resurrection belief. For example, when I'd say I did my PhD on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, outside of Judaism, no one believed in resurrection. It was something grotesque to the modern mind of the first century. Mm. If Christianity wanted to invent a religion, that was a non-starter to say that they believed a body, a gross body, according to the, you know, the platonic notion of the immortality of the soul, the body was something to get rid of, to throw off. Um, and so when I understand the resurrection narratives coming through the oldest parts of nascent um, Hebrew culture in the book of Job, the question's asked, if a man die, does he live again? Well, that doesn't really get a really super clear answer until the book of Daniel. And then we see that motif grow right into the time of the Pharisees and late Second Temple Judaism. And so I am aided tremendously. I'll also say this, I've taught Old Testament uh, at the Division I level, and, I, and so I continue to love to engage students in how the Bible interprets the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so I'd encourage anyone um, that might be listening to this and you're pursuing more serious terminal studies, um, you want to have a good mixture of classes in the Old Testament, New Testament, and of course the late Second Temple Judaism. Some people might call it the silent years. They were anything but silent. That's really a misnomer. It was an exciting time uh, of development of people of faith. And so uh, I've been, again, I've been encouraged by that and I continue to learn uh, letting scripture interpret scripture. That's a great question, Elisa. So this latest find uh, that Times of Israel headline read, archaeologist claims to find the oldest Hebrew text in Israel. I mean, this is a huge claim. Uh, and then it actually includes the name of God. So what is, help us understand, like, what are they actually claiming? Yeah. What is the actual claim being made here? Absolutely. So for the busy person, why is this important? Why is Elisa <laughs> to having me on to discuss this? Uh, this is the find of our lifetime, in my opinion, in Craig Evans' opinion, and in several other biblical scholars. In fact, I've only heard a few minimalist scholars really come out against this fragment. Of course, even before the announcement was made, one uh, minimalist archaeologist was calling it a forgery, even before the announcement was made. So oh. we all have biases, I guess. There's four important reasons why this matters for the pastors who are watching us and for all the Christian thinkers out there. This find, I've actually added a fourth layer to it. It really kills four, four, four birds with one stone, as it were. We have in this curse tablet, that was found in Mount Ebal, and we'll get there. Elisa's provided some wonderful images. We have the earliest recorded divine name from the material culture. Of course, I'm talking about Yahweh in the land of Israel. This is huge. Number two, it is hundreds of years earlier than any extant Hebrew text that we have. And I just want to remind our audience that the next closest, earliest extant Hebrew text that we have from archaeology dates to the time of Saul's monarchy. It's called the Caiapha inscription. So that would date to about 1000 BC. If you're doing the chronology, this is two to 400 years earlier than that. We're talking late bronze, early iron age one, early iron age one. Those are the first two reasons. Number three, it supports the earlier dating of the Exodus. Because if we have a curse tablet happening and we have curses and blessings happening where the Bible says they were supposed to happen, according to Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua 8, uh, they would have already crossed the Red Sea. They would have already left the land of Israel. And so this lends a lot of credibility to the earlier dating. And I know for our audience, Lisa, I might be getting a little bit too much in the weeds there, but if anyone has taken a survey of Old Testament uh, history course, um, I was the, the later dating was pounded into me in my yeah. undergraduate days where, where the Bible was kind of wishy-washy in their, in their minds. Um, 
And then the fourth thing, this is what I've just added. This has, I was taught, and again, literally taught that the documentary hypothesis is the only explanation for the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was put together and collated, to use that word, over a series of hundreds of years. There's absolutely no way that Moses wrote the Pentateuch as Jesus said he did. Um, and by the way, the reason for that is one example that uh, minimalist, hyper-skeptical scholars would give, they would say you don't have the, the two names of God, El and Yahweh, together anywhere. They're hundreds of years apart. Well, guess what we have in this cursed tablet, Elisa? We have the name of El and then the covenant name of God, Yahweh, multiple times in the same cursed tablet from the late Bronze Age era, and it is so exciting. Those are the four reasons, very quickly, mm -hmm. why this find is so important. Those are the implications of what it means for us. And for anyone listening who, some of these words are new to you, you you might not have heard of the documentary hypothesis, and uh, you know, this is so important, and help me if I if I mischaracterize this. I think I think what you're saying here is that there's, you know, maybe some more liberal scholars that came along and said, hey, we don't think Moses wrote the the first five books of the right. Old Testament because it seems to be there's these different editors and authors that came together and you can, and there's different versions of that. But what you're saying is one of the reasons they say that is because you don't have the two divine names together, but now here we go with this new find, you have the two divine names together, which is, would seem to be pretty good evidence to go away from the documentary hypothesis. Would you, would you say that's correct? Or? Absolutely. And there's other excellent, I mean, this is just, again, one layer of why I don't ascribe to the documentary hypothesis. And you have to understand, um, you know, and I, I did my doctorate in Oxford and so many of these places, they want you to look at the Bible. And it's so important we do this as, as historians. They don't want you to privilege the text, Elisa. They want you to draw out your arguments and you want, they want you to treat the Bible with the same critical eye that you would any other document from history. And I have done that. The unfortunate problem is, is with so many, the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And as Christians, we need to be aware we live in a post-Christian world that's hostile to Christianity, hostile to Christian thinking. And so when we have these minimalists coming out before Dr. Stripling, my dear friend, the archaeologist, even announces it and saying it's a forgery, that, again, is not using academic freedom. That's not, that doesn't have credibility with me academically. And so what I'm saying, though, about this find and archaeology, remember, the mother's milk of archaeology is controversy, and it should be. I say that all the time. <laughs> um, if these finds are true, it should stand up to the most rigorous critical thinking. But let's give it a chance first. Let's read the inscription. Let's check out the, uh, the well-documented, peer-reviewed study that's going to be coming out in just a matter of few, a few weeks. Um, let's not have it be guilty until proven innocent. That's good. And then just another thing you mentioned was that this sort of gives evidence for the earlier dating of the Exodus. Why would that matter to the average Christian? You know, who cares if it's later or if it's earlier? What what relevance does that have to our understanding of the Bible? Absolutely. Well, again, you know, what this goes into text criticism, right? We want to make sure that we are understanding the Bible in the original context with which it's written in. And there are some chronological problems um, with the later dating of the Exodus. It just creates a messy situation. Now, again, it doesn't, it doesn't cause us to misunderstand the gospel. There are gray areas in our faith. There are things we're not going to know until we get to heaven. But it gives us more precision as historians. And as a careful Christian thinker, as someone who's committed to loving God with my heart, soul, and my mind, I want to go where the evidence leads me. 
I want to have a faith that's based on evidence. And, and here's an exciting new layer of evidence that gives important evidential reasons to believe in the later dating of the book of Exodus, uh, or excuse me, the later dating of the actual historical ex Exodus, excuse me. Um, and as a result, um, it also helps me to be more careful. I have two master's degrees. I have a PhD. I was fed a lot of stuff at, at high, in, in the halls of higher education that I think was overly biased and I had to work through that. And so, wow, this gives me a more careful understanding that guess what? Moses did write the Pentateuch. It gives me a more careful understanding of the chronology of the Old Testament. And again, that's just so important as we come to the time of Jesus. So it has huge weight for us and it's vitally important because I wanna be a careful Christian thinker. I wanna be a critical Christian thinker. And this helps me do that. I don't wanna ignore the evidence because of just some bias I heard in one class I took in a seminary years ago. Very good. So you mentioned there's going to be some peer-reviewed studies coming out, and everyone is taking a look at this evidence. What do you think about it? It's legitimacy. Do you think this is going to pan out to be legit, or do you think this is maybe going to be kind of debated and nobody's going to really know, or what do you think is going to happen with it? I think it's I think it's authentic, and so does so does my dear friend Craig Evans, who's probably the finest Jesus scholar in the English speaking world. We're very well aware of the methodology that my good friend, Dr. Scott Stripling, he's the director of excavations for Associates of Biblical Research. This is a consortium of universities. And Dr. Stripling has been doing archaeology in the land of Israel at four different conquest sites. So when I say a conquest site, I don't mean a modern war conquest. I mean the conquest of Joshua. And he has been there for 25 years. He has all of the archae other archaeologists on speed dial. And Elisa, he's not going to blow his credibility over something that's a forgery or a fake. Mm. And with your permission, I would love to give into some of the reasons why I think it's authentic. Yeah, please. Um, based on the methodology of how Scott went about doing this exciting new, you know, because archaeology is evolving. In other words, archaeologists do it differently now than when they than they did it 120 years ago. It's like so many of our disciplines. And I also want to get into just the timing of this. I believe God's hand is in this, Elisa, because we have this thing called tomographic scanning right now that exists in our modern era that, you know, Grenfell and Hunt did not have when they were in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, pulling up these wonderful New Testament documents, uh, some of which were fragments of the New Testament. We now have tomographic scanning in the Czech Republic, where it's something like if you have ever had a CAT scan, I have, we're able to read the different layers of this curse amulet. And so what, what Scott found, if you don't mind me jumping right in, it's two by four centimeters if it was folded out. So it's about twice the size of a modern postage stamp. The curse though is written, there's writing inside the tablet and then it is sealed. It is sealed, it's written on lead with a stylus that is sealed. And so they put that scan, that tablet, the lead cursed tablet, the amulet, it's in Hebrew, it's defixio. Uh, literally, they want to fix a curse on someone. And by the way, we have cursed tablets as old as there is known writing, just so you know. I mean, people have been cursing each other since <laughs> the beginning of mankind, by the way. Uh, so this isn't anything unique to Judaism. I want to, I want to say that. Um, and so we have this unique tablet. And, and, and because of our modern technology, we're able to decipher the different layers of writing, just like you can see within your body with a CAT scan. It's called tomographic scanning. I'm also aware of the excellent epigraphers. Um, again, this isn't a sensational claim. Scott found this in 2019, and because of COVID, he wasn't able to get back to actually get it and then get it to Prague. And, and this is an expensive process. He has to raise money for this. 
Peter Vandeveer, uh, Gershon Galil, two epigraphers. We should talk about epigraphy and paleography at some point. Studied and deciphered the actual writing in the text. This helps us, again, have more precision of the timing. Uh, and so this is a group of scholars that have staked their reputation coming out saying, uh, this looks authentic uh, and it's really exciting and could be the, the find of our lifetime. So the type of writing is called proto-alphabetic Hebrew text. Hebrew. Help us Good understand. Job. I probably yeah. said that wrong. Tell us what, what that is and no, what significance that, that you has. Nailed it. Okay, this is so important for us to understand, and this is where I've already seen um, some missteps by well-meaning, but, but uh, those that are skeptical of the find. You cannot think about Hebrew in the time of Joshua, the way modern Hebrew is spoken, or even the way the biblical Hebrew is written, okay? Think about uh, those that have an English degree out there. Think about the English of Beowulf. Think about Chaucer's English. Think about Shakespeare's English. It's all quote-unquote English, but I'm not sure anyone alive could could read Beowulf. I mean, do you? I mean, that like that's original, yeah. <laughs> pretty close to original English. And so Hebrew is the same. And so I'm kind of learning how to teach this better as I go, Elisa. And I hope that's a helpful analogy for the Hebrew language that is actually, it's, it's early Egyptian hieroglyphs that begin to morph into Hebrew phonics. And so Scott, mm. Dr. Stripling, the archaeologist, Immediately, immediately saw the olive, the resh, saw the word curse. You could see it. So it's beginning to morph into Hebrew characters, uh, Hebrew morphology. And so when I say it's even proto-Hebraic, it's, it's before anything else we have in the Hebrew language. And that's okay. That's how ang languages develop. That's how they evolve. And so uh, there's going to be different interpretation of what it actually says, but that is what proto-Hebraic script is. And we would expect that to be the case in early Judaism. Wow. So um, where was this found, by the way? And like, what yeah. was the process of discovering it? And thank you so much for um, for having these slides available. If we could go to yeah. the Area A slide for the benefit of our audience. And I want to be really clear, what you're looking at is if you open up to Deuteronomy or Joshua chapter 8, Deuteronomy 26, you're going to see that there is Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. If you're familiar with Jesus speaking to the woman in John 4, that happens at Mount Gerizim. You have the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. And what we're looking at is the base of the Mount of Cursing, where the Bible tells us that Joshua, son of Nun, the very historical Joshua that we read about, follows the biblical guideline and precepts. He goes to the Mount of Cursing, which is Mount Ebal. So this is a, a handwritten diagram of the actual, uh, this is so exciting, Elisa, this is, the, this is Joshua's altar that was discovered at the base of the Mount of Cursing, Mount Ebal, in the land of Israel. It's discovered between 1982 and 1989 by, by the way, an atheist, mm. <laughs> practically communist archaeologist by the name of Adam Zertal. Zertal was raised in a kibbutz, and if anyone's been to Israel, I mean, it's very communistic in a kibbutz, very socialistic. He had no interest in the things of God or the things of faith. He's an archaeologist, and between 1982 and 1989, he finds Joshua's altar. And that's what you see in, that, in this diagram. And as he's digging between 1982 and 1989, where do they put the mounds of, of, of earth that they're going through to get to these two stratas? 
So as we're looking at this, if you and I were at this archaeological site with Dr. Stripling and his amazing team, um, we would see that there is different strata, which is simply different layers. We know it as stratigraphy, different depths in the ground that archaeologists and their teams dig at and for. And here from 1982 to 1989, Adam Zertal, again, not a person of faith. By the way, he becomes a born-again Christian and dies, unfortunately, before all of his work is published. Mm. But as they're digging and finding Joshua's altar, they're sifting through earth, and then they create these trash dumps. And again, in archaeology, we love trash, Elisa. Trash <laughs> is extremely valuable in archaeology. So in that seven-year period, they create a lot of trash dumps as they're excavating Joshua's altar from Mount Ebal. So fast forward, my good friend, Dr. Scott Stripling and his volunteer team, they a great thing that they have devised is what's called first dry sifting and wet sifting now lisa i have five children including triplet boys who are five years old mm. so i haven't slept in five years since yeah. they were born uh, we, i take them to the petting zoo and we do wet sifting for jewels we have little packs you buy it's a total ripoff and i have yeah. to do it times three for the triplets but we we sift and we find the jewels guess what archaeologists are doing that um, with these trash heaps at these previously excavated archaeological sites. That's as clearly as I can say it. And so in 2019, December, before the pandemic, um, and let's give props to the volunteer that found this. They are wet sifting, and you can go to Dr. Scott Stripling's social media. He actually just posted a picture. They built this wet sifting machine where they're sifting through all of the debris that was left over from Adams or Tall. Now, they did a great job documenting their findings, but you're always going to have just stuff left over, like crumbs at the, at the end of a dinner table. They're wet sifting they immediately find this lead curse tablet. And you know what? If we could go to the folded lead tablet slide, boom, here it is. This is exactly what they found. Scott, on that image on my right, as I'm looking at the screen, sees what looks to be like the figure of a man. He begins to immediately notice this. It's written in lead. And by the way, uh, the book of Job, the, probably the earliest book written in the Old Testament, mm -hmm discusses how we need to write the curse down on a lead tablet. So we see this is consistent wow. with what we see with the biblical narrative. And you see this is front and back. And you see they tried to open it up. They tried to unseal it, as it were, and it begins to crack. And they said, oh, no, we can't do this. We need to ship it off. And that's where the topographic, excuse me, tomographic scanning comes into play. Um, and so what, and by the way, let's go. You can see um, the divine name Yahweh from Mount Ebal and proto-alphabetic script. This is really exciting. Um, and so what, what do they, what have they deciphered? What has Peter Vanderveer, what has Gershon Galil? And again, these are epigraphers, uh, one from the University of Mainz, the other from the University of Haifa. And what have these, and by the way, anyone who wants to can go watch the press release. They can read the findings from these epigraphers. What do they decipher? 40 Hebrew letters, 23 words. And we actually have the slide for the benefit of the audience. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Now notice here it is, cursed by the L, God, Yahweh. Wow. There you have those two divine names together. One is L, the other is the personal covenant name, Lord or Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. So it's 40 proto-alphabetic letters, 
11 which are the Aleph in this 23-word English translation of the inscription. That's what we found. That's how they found it. And I want to give props to Frankie, a volunteer who noticed this, found it, pointed it out to Dr. Stripling. And so, friends, you can go to the land of Israel today. There's le only less than 100 digs, and, and they don't happen 52 weeks out of the year. Again, these are expensive events, and you want college kids that will come, you know, bunk together and get up at 5 a.m. It's expensive. They'll volunteer. They raise money. Uh, and what's fascinating to me, Elisa, and this is anecdotal, again, for the benefit of all the Christian thinkers, several of the sites, and in fact, a great majority of the sites are not led by evangelical Christians. And that's mm. why I'd encourage people to support, be advised by, and definitely connect with Dr. Scott Stripling and Associates of Biblical uh, Research because they're an anomaly. Most archaeological sites in the land of Israel, they're led by atheist or agnostic archaeologists. But even those atheist agnostic archaeologists will use six books in their excavations. And you want to know what the six are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Book of Acts, and Josephus. Those are the sources they use. And of course, that's because they exhibit verisimilitude with the world in which they were written. And so this is very exciting, and it's why we need to stay up with biblical archaeology as Christian thinkers. So the atheist and agnostic archaeologists, I'm just curious, what's their interest in biblical archaeology? That, that seems like, yeah. do we see conversions well, from them even, I'm wondering? You know, it's interesting. That's a whole nother discussion that's really interesting. And this is why I want to encourage people to go to the land of Israel. These archaeologists are passionate about the land of Israel. They're passionate. Many of them are Jews uh, in name only because many of them are self-described atheists or agnostics. So they're cultural Jews, but they love the land of Israel. Um, and Elisa, this was, this was an issue for me. Um, I, again, I thought everybody who studied the Bible loved the Bible. I thought everybody who uh, sought to study scriptures at the highest level uh, it was because they had a personal faith. I mean, for example, it was kind of funny living in Oxford. Um, I look back and I laugh now because they did not care what I believed. They didn't want me to even discuss my personal beliefs. It was very regimen. They wanted me to draw my argument. And so I wrote a 93,000-word Uberli Frangs Geschichte of Resurrection, which is just a history of, of interpretation, a history of resurrection belief. The first question I'm asked in my Viva, and I don't know how it is in the American system, but in the UK system, it's pass fail. And if you fail at your PhD, you can never take a PhD in that discipline again. In the, wow. in the UK, they give you what's called an MPhil. The first question I'm asked by a biblical scholar who is one of the disciples of William Barclay, we've all heard of Barclay's Bible backgrounds. By the way, he didn't believe in the miraculous at all. And my examiner during my Viva said, Jeremiah, I just have one question. And half the words he's saying are in Latin that I don't understand at the time. <laughs> he said, do you actually believe do you actually believe the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus happened? Or is that just imaginative storytelling on the part of the gospel writers? My first question was what I believed. Wow. And I said, Professor, I said, without a doubt, the evidence leads me to believe that Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave. He said, I don't see it that way. Let's start your Viva. So again, this was a Bible scholar who thought, trained under William Barclay, got his PhD at Cambridge, and yet did not believe. He thought that the bodily resurrection was imaginative storytelling. And so it's hard to know the motives of the heart. And so as you go deeper 
in Christian thinking. This is why it's so important that we develop a good, strong library. We have, we have good sources. And again, Elisa, this is what your show does so well for us. It equips us with wonderful thinkers that help us think more deeply about our own faith. And it also protects us um, because there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of well-meaning Christians who have found themselves in those environment and their faith it can come crumbling down and it doesn't need to, right? Yeah. So you mentioned these uh, curse tablets were very common back then. Yes. Do we see? Because uh, obviously, what was found was a curse tablet. It's not. He, it's not the Hebrew Bible. It's not a text of the Hebrew Bible. Correct. So, do we see right. evidence for, of curse tablets in the Hebrew Bible, or does it talk we about? We do. Them? In fact. Absolutely. That is such a good question. Um, and I'm opening my Bible right now, and if you'll just bear with me, to Joshua chapter 8, because this was a beautiful ceremony that would have happened all day long in the land of Israel. Joshua is following the commandment from Deuteronomy, and these scriptures are important, and this is why I'm interested in it. And, Josh, and this is after, uh, so they, they win. Um, at Jericho. They meet, They lose at first at I or AI, however you'd like to pronounce it. Then they have victory. They get the sin out of the camp at A or IA, I or IA, or excuse me, AI. <laughs> and they then begun, they come to the land of cursing and the land of blessing. This is Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. And so that's what Adam Zertal found. Um, then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. And here what happens, and it goes on to explain this, they begin to pronounce blessings and curses. This isn't a contract. A contract is an agreement between two equal parties. A covenant has a, a more important party in it, and that is God. They make a covenant. They bind themselves in a curse. Lord, curse me if I don't follow you. Mm. Bless me, bless me, bless me if I do these things. Curse me, curse me, curse me if I fail. Mm. And so why did we need an altar on Mount Ebal? Because we all fail, Elisa. We all need the blood of Jesus. We all find ourselves not mostly not on the Mount of Blessing, but on the Mount of Cursing. And that's where the cleansing blood of Jesus. And we see this from nascent Hebrew beliefs. From the earliest Hebrew beliefs, they have an altar at the Mount of Cursing. And they pronounce these blessings and these cursings. And, you know, we can only, this is where I speculate. Like if I was in a class with, uh, in, in a seminary level class, I mean, could this be, Joshua's told to write down the curses. Could Joshua have actually written on this lead tablet? Perhaps. We can speculate. Someone wrote down a curse, mm -hmm. and they bound themselves to this curse, and then they put it on the altar. I mean, it, it was amazing. It was illustrative. It was emblematic. I would have had my family of seven there, and we would have been watching. We are binding ourselves to these blessings and these cursings, as Joshua 8 says. And so, yes, we have blessings. We have cursings in a covenant agreement with the Lord in the Old Testament. And what do we see? And so, again, that helps us understand. And these are three quick points. We're finding, we find this where we should, archaeologically speaking. It's in the right place at the right time. The lead they have tested, and again, you can go study this for yourself and read the headlines and definitely read the pre or watch the press release. The actual lead tablet is from a mine in Greece that produce lead. 
And it's from that very time period, that two to 400 BC. And so again, I'm not just jumping on this bat. Again, as a careful, critical think Christian thinker, someone who thinks Christianly, I'm seeing layers and layers of evidence. I'm seeing the methodology that Dr. Stripling goes about. I'm seeing the other voices. And by the way, I don't know if they're all Christians, Lisa. They're just specialists in their fields of epigraphy, tomographic scanning. I mean, we can't assume that they all have a, a uh, dog in the hunt personally or theologically. We've kind of gone there already, but they're all saying this is authentic. And that's why until, you know, again, we're, I'm happy to come back on your program if something comes to light yeah, yeah. Um, that we're not anticipating. But you and I are right now sharing everything we do know for the benefit of the audience, because at the end of the day, we want to teach your audience and the people who connect with you how to think Christianly. We don't want to tell them what to think. We want to encourage people, be critical Christian thinkers for yourself. Go check this stuff out. Be like the Bereans. Take it back to the Word of God, and then you decide. It, it certainly is added. I, I'm persuaded by it. I think it's cogent. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that. I, I think this might be a good time to talk about critical thinking when it comes to articles you might read about archaeological finds. There have been some famous fakes, some hoaxes right. that Christians have just bought into be, because I think we, we are so looking for that to be true. We want it to be true. So we're not taking a minute to step back and say, hey, okay, we've, we've got to make sure. And one example we we talked about before we went on the air is there's so many articles that I saw maybe a few years ago written about how they found chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. And maybe talk right. about that a little bit. And maybe we can use that as a cautionary tale to say, look, we're going to we're gonna wait. We're hopeful. We think this looks good. The scholarship looks good around it. But we want to make sure that what we believe actually lines up with reality. Absolutely. This is such an important point because we can actually go to extremes on both sides. We can go to the minimalist extreme camp where we, you know, we can't know anything about history, so why even bother? Or we can go to the camp where, oh my gosh, I'm I am going to read a headline, I'm gonna share it online, and I'm just gonna throw the snake in the middle of the room and walk away and then forget about it and start binging a Netflix show. We have to be critical Christian thinkers and I saw this with my own daughter, Lily Faith, um, and her class at her Christian school. They showed um, here in Houston, they showed a YouTube video that we can trust the Exodus because there are, in fact, uh, remains of chariots in the Red Sea. And of course, this is a complete hoax. I want my children and I want every Christian that loves Jesus Christ to be armed with the best information. And so that's why we have to be so careful that we pass on the information and actually read it. I've taken time to study this. I love archaeology. I'm in that small minority camp of only about 10% of Bible scholars that have actually been to the land of Israel, seen the archaeological sites, and been aided through that. And you know, I think a lot of Bible scholars may not be that interested in archaeology just because the ways in which they actually approach the text because of their own biases. And so mm. we need to be careful. You've, you've, you've issued a very clear warning, and I just co-signed with it, Elisa, because there is great reason. There are great reasons to believe in the historical exodus. We've already discussed there's great reasons to believe in the older dating, but not because of a YouTube video, not because of a hoax of some picture, like a James Cameron style Titanic picture of a, Hebrew, of a chariot wheel in the Red Sea. If that were the case, they would be in museums all over the world and we would have writing and publications related to those. And we just simply don't. Now here's the exciting thing though. 92% um, of the places of the Old Testament have been found. The, I mean, geography, we haven't even had time to get into. One 
100 places, excuse me, 100% of the places mentioned in the book of Acts have been verified. So again, Christianity, and I love how you jumped out at this right at the beginning, Christianity is verifiable. We have a faith that should be verifiable if what we say actually occurred, what, indeed what we believe actually occurred in history. And so we can say that we don't have to reach to the hoax uh, for a gotcha moment. Uh, but at the same time, I'm going to be careful because, you know, again, this is why I actually have a list that I provide on recommended New Testament and Old Testament commentaries, because I love all the old commentaries, Lisa. But if a commentary is published between before 1948, guess what? They have no idea of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you when you think about these commentaries, they're fine to have in your library, but I actually keep updating. Here's my recommended list of New Testament commentaries because we're continuing to find more and more uh, archaeological finds from the material culture that help us really get more precision. And I want to keep repeating that. It helps us understand the text better. Uh, and so I want to stay current as a Christian yeah. thinker. And a great way to do that is having great modern commentaries. And I think, too, for people who may be watching and listening to this going, wow, this is just, this is a lot and it's cool, but... <laughs> You know, what's the significance for me? And I'll just give you one for, for me personally. Uh, go Back when I was in a very um, skeptical situation in the church that I wrote my mm-hmm. book about, um, it was brought up some— some it was brought up to discredit the Bible, some facts about the Exodus. That that was a topic of conversation. And I yeah. remember I can't even remember the specific ones, but some of it had to do with the dating because what a lot of people don't realize, you gotta think cohesively. We gotta put it all together. So when you think about when the Exodus happened, it relates to when the Battle of Jericho happened. Because there's, exactly. you know, there's historically there's a, a link there. And so the one of the reasons that this is exciting for me personally is because it helps settle even some of the skeptical claims that were made and brought to my attention over 10 years ago. Now, you know, plus 10 years later, we have evidence leaning toward that earlier date, which lines up better, if I'm remembering correctly, with the Battle of Jericho, what the Bible says about it. The Bible says this happened, and then this happened this many years later. Well, the earlier date, the older date of Exodus, would confirm the biblical narrative. Is, Is that accurate? Right. Yeah, so it's that's 100% accurate. You that's nailed so it. exciting. Yeah, and it should me. be. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And and again, by the way, Jesus said Moses wrote the Pentateuch and this right. this find lends credence to that. And again, it also blows apart a lot of the documentary hypothesis. And so this is why I want to encourage our audience go to the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. I know it can be expensive, I know it can be hard, but it, it changes. It's life-changing to go to the land of Israel. And by the way, like my daughter, she wants to be uh, baptized in the Jordan River. So we've been mm. waiting. We're going to go in a few months to Israel. And she said, Daddy, is it safe there? Yeah, it's safer than the city of Houston where we live. We have 300 gangs in the city of Houston. <laughs> so yeah, it's absolutely safer to go to the land of Israel than many modern American cities. But I want to encourage people, go look for yourself. Go to Caesarea Maritima, uh, Maritime, where you can see the Pilatos inscription that has Pilate incised in the very stone. And of course, if you think back to Bruno Bauer, the German higher critic, he said Pilate was a fictional character. You can go to Caesarea Maritime. You can see the Palato stone. You can see, no, Pilate was not a fictional character. So again, all this is going to do is help Mm. you think more clearly about your faith. It's going to deepen your own understanding. And it's going to remind us that we have a faith that's verifiable. 
Yeah. We have an evidence-based faith. We're not living on Star Trek land and just wondering and thinking, oh, you know, this feels right to me. Like progressive Christians want to verify a truth with their feelings. No, no. In fact, uh, feelings are a terrible arbiter of truth. They're a terrible interpreter of truth. No, we have evidence. We have this solid evidence for our faith. And so if you can go to Jordan, go to the land of Israel, go to Rome, go to Greece, go to these places, and your faith will be forever changed by it. And you mentioned Jewish burial practices and the yeah. the bone box. And another great archaeological find is that we have the bone box, which most likely was Caiaphas, the high priest that uh, Jesus interacted yes. with during his trial. So, I mean, there's really cool. F- that's why I love biblical archaeology because it's so it's really an exciting study. Uh, but what I'd love to do, just with the few minutes we have left here, is maybe yes. maybe try to poke holes in this a little bit. Like let's let's think critically sure. here of what somebody might think when, you know, we're kind of excited, we're tentatively excited, we're we're withholding final judgment here, but it's looking good. But what if somebody says, well, you know, they found this in the dirt, kind of in the place it should be, and, you know, somebody else had been there digging before that. I mean, how do we know that somebody didn't just plant, plant this? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's certainly a criticism that can come up. It's just going to be extremely hard to do that, because when you're sifting these things, it looks like a rock, okay? It looks like a clay rock, and it, you know, there's they're everywhere. And so, as a result, you know, again, that's again, what level of what level of certainty do we need to feel confident about it? You know, certainty is really a mirage in some of these things, and certainly you could say that about a lot of finds. Um, was it planted? Was it? You know, and that's again where I think the the actual peer-reviewed study is going to help us a lot. It's going to be really difficult uh, to produce something. Um, <laughs> that's found from a uh, a mine in Greece in that time period, plant it there. It just, you know, you almost need more faith to see that carried out mm. uh, than actually just take it at face value. And so again, um, and again, these heaps, they're like mountains. They're, it's not like a, a, a land dump or something. I mean, they, they become almost like you got to still get through them. And so, you know, it's not as easy as what it sounds to just chuck something down and, oh, sure, this will be found, um, you know, not a problem. And, and it laid there since the 1980s. Um, mm. These dumps have been there, um, we can say, from the very latest since 1989. And so, you know, why now? Um, that kind of thing. The, those kind of questions come into my mind. You know, another, another criticism is, oh, well, you know, uh, you're looking at it or someone might look at it anachronistically and not realize that this is a proto-Hebraic script. This is proto-alphabetic. I mean, it's even it's pre-proto-Hebraic, and so it's it's old. And so, yeah, we can we can also well, there might be some arguments about the interpretation, and so we'll want to stay tuned for that. Mm. All I do know is that I respect Peter Vandeveer and Gershon Galil a lot, um, and I don't think that um, they're willing to stake their whole reputation on. A misidentification, but yeah, we can we can discuss the interpretation. How do we interpret the earliest Hebrew uh, letters script that we have that's four hundred years older, perhaps, than the Kaiapha inscription? Um, and so there should be healthy dialogue around that. And again, we want to allow that. Uh, again, controversy is the mother's milk of archaeology, and the goal of archaeology is not excavation; it's publication. And so, mm. I'm looking forward for the peer-reviewed publications that are coming out, and then I'm looking forward to the conferences and the discussions that are going to happen. Uh, and then I'm looking forward to how this also advances the science of biblical archaeology. I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about wet sifting in the future. So now it's cool; it's trendy. 
it's a new device. I think it's going to be used a lot more in the future. And I think there's going to be less skepticism about, oh, this was found in a trash heap. It must be a forgery. Mm. Um, I think that this is a tool that many more are going to use in the future. Very cool. And this was discovered in 2019. So why is this just coming out now, do you think? That's such a good question. It's because of COVID. Um, Scott is a licensed, Dr. Scott Stripling is a licensed archaeologist. So he has a storage room at the IAA. That's the Israel Antiquities Authority. This has been in his storage unit since 2019. They knew what they had and he couldn't get back to the land of Israel because of the pandemic. He couldn't travel. And so that's why there's been a little bit of a delay. Um, you know, and, and another, another interesting thing that I want people to know, Elisa, and this is why I love, you know, having these kind of discussions with you. We do know there is a lot of academic piracy that happens. And the reason that Dr. Stripling, his hand was really forced to go ahead and make the public announcement because some bad information was already starting to come out from other academics who were making very bold assertions that didn't have all the facts. And so it really forced his hand to have to make the announcement. And I'm sure he would likely admit this before he wanted to. Um, and so that's just, again, the world. This is a messy world. I mean, if you did a study, it would be fascinating if somebody wanted to take up the study. And this is a general comment. How do you think all the museums in the world got their findings? I mean, do you think it was done in a very clean way? I mean, if you go to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, you know, the Nazis took so many of those archaeological finds. They just stole them. Um, mm. You know, so you can go to the Pergamon Museum and see. I mean, we often want to assume or presume and project on this process like this airtight auditing process. And that's just not the way it's worked. And that's why where you started out, it was very insightful. This is a young science. Biblical archaeology has only been around for about 120 years. These museums, I mean, they're building the world's largest museum right now in Cairo, Cairo, two kilometers from the Giza pyramids. It's a billion dollar museum. It's the size of six football fields. Um, you know, this is exciting stuff. But when you study the provenance, as we call this, of some of these findings, it can be sketchy and messy. And so we should, we should have it open for public inquiry. But Scott's hand was forced to go ahead and make the announcement a few weeks ago uh, because some bad information was starting to get out. And that's just part gotcha. of the process. Yeah, gotcha. Well, um, Jeremiah, where can people connect with you online? How can they learn more about your ministry and what you're doing and yeah. all, of the, all of those things? Thank you so much. Uh, our ministry is Christian Thinker Society. And I, I tell people, you know, uh, I became my ministry before I ever had one. And I wanted to love Jesus Christ with my heart, my soul, and my mind. And so the first two Christian thinkers in our ministry were Audrey, my wife, and me. And we've just seen God develop it over the last dozen years. And so go to ChristianThinkers.com. Um, I'm getting ready to come out with my 12th book. I was actually due. Don't tell my publisher I was doing this interview. It was actually due about a month ago. <laughs> uh, body of proof, seven reasons, I, seven of the best reasons I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And so I, we just love to resource and equip believers to love God with their heart, soul, and mind. We do that through uh, fresh content. I love trying to translate our faith in simple language. Smart people speak in simple language. And C.S. Lewis said the job of a Christian thinker is to speak in the cultural vernacular. Mm. So I'm trying to do that better as a Christian thinker and trying to train others to do that as well. And so, again, thank you, Elisa. I love you and your ministry. I'm so excited about how God continues to use you. I love learning from you. And I'm just excited. I think we're living in the golden age of apologetics and Christian thinking. And I'm excited that so many 
are galvanized and rallying behind our faith and knowing more about it, going to God's word instead of Google. So yeah, check it out at christianthinkers.com. Check us out at Prestonwood Christian Academy, Prestonwood Baptist Church, a lot more to come there. So thank you so much. All right. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. What a great interview, insightful interview about biblical archaeology. We're going to do this again. We'll have more info on biblical archaeology because we have barely touched the surface of some of this stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe and click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms, it always helps if you go leave a five-star review. And of course, if you saw this post shared on social media, clicking like, leaving a comment, sharing it on your social media news feeds helps get those algorithms going to get this into the hands of more people. Thank you so much for watching today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.